Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for what you are showing us through your word. And we pray that by your spirit that you would give us grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, sometimes as a pastor, you get the um, privilege of visiting people in their homes and you see um, various um, sort of Bible verses, memory verses that I had, they have uh, wonderfully embroidered up on the wall. And, and, um, and in all my time, though, in visiting homes, I, I've never found um, Galatians chapter 2, verse 3, but it's a suggestion for you. It says, uh, even Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and surprisingly, I've never found that one uh, on any, anyone's uh, kind of uh, uh, wall. Uh, but I hope by the end of t- today, end of this morning, you'll, you'll see that actually it is a key verse. It's an important verse. And, and I commend it to you. you. You might even want to have a w- wonderful embroidery uh, of that verse on your wall. Uh, even Titus was not compelled uh, to be circumcised. Uh, it does get us to the heart of the gospel, the heart of the passage, actually. Um, uh, for those of you who have been with us in this series, there, there's been sort of two gospels that the Galatians are hearing, a, a true gospel that Paul preached and a false gospel that, that these other people came in and were preaching. And, and Paul's gospel was this, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But these false teachers were coming in and they were saying, Jesus plus circumcision is everything. Now, I don't hear anyone saying that today. I don't hear people at St. Philip saying, uh, yeah, well, Jesus plus, so you should get circumcised. You need that as well. But, but do we um, inadvertently add other things as requirements for membership to Christ's church? Do we inadvertently put uh, burdens on people that they have to uh, keep in order for them to belong and in, in order for them to be acceptable uh, before God? The cultural things that we put on people in order for them to be accepted in the church. Uh, What they uh, said was very clear in our second reading in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, uh, which was our first reading, sorry. They were saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You see, uh, the Apostle Paul, we saw last week, he'd encountered the life-changing good news of the gospel of free grace in Jesus Christ. And it was so transformative for him that he went everywhere across the Roman world to preach the good news. Uh, and uh, that was the message that he preached. But everywhere he went, these, it seems, these um, false teachers followed him and they preached a different gospel. And they were um, a thorn in his flesh. Some scholars go so far to say that um, if you know your, your Bible in in 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul talks about having a thorn in his flesh. And some scholars say that the thorn in his flesh were these false teachers who followed him everywhere and kind of distorted his message and corrupted the true teaching of the gospel. That's what some scholars say. It's interesting. While I was reading the Bible this week, I read a parable um, that Jesus told about a farmer who sowed good seed and then he'd sort of, you know, go away and go to sleep, and then an enemy would come and amongst the good seed would sow weeds amongst them to disrupt the seeds. And you know what? That's exactly what we have happening in the context of Paul's letter to the Galatians. He had sowed the good seed of the true gospel that will bear good fruit, and these false teachers are coming with a different message 
and saying, yeah, Jesus is great, but you need this stuff as well. And so I want, you to, I want to show you this morning how Paul responds to people who are preaching a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. Have a look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. He's been preaching the gospel for 14 years, and then he says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went in response to a revelation, then I laid before them, though only in a private meeting with the acknowledged leaders, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. And so this whole passage is basically the story of Paul going down to Jerusalem to make sure that they were on the same page in terms of the gospel and to establish that once and for all, essentially to um, uh, discredit and disprove the, t- the false teachers who were saying something else. He says, I went in response to a revelation. And then it says, I went in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. What, what's, he talking, what's he talking about when he says, uh, th- th- to make sure I, had, I wasn't running or had not run in vain? Well, he's not saying that he's worried that he got the gospel wrong and he needed to kind of check it out with the head dudes back in Jerusalem because we've seen from Paul's letter to the Galatians, he said, no, I got my gospel from God. Um, I, I know my gospel is true. No, the reason that he went down to Jerusalem is because he was worried that the apostles wouldn't back him up and so that these false teachers would be able to keep saying what they were saying because, you see, what they were saying is that not only Paul has Paul got the gospel wrong, but they're saying, we've got the gospel right, and if you check, if you fact-check us with the apostles back in Jerusalem, you'll find that they agree with us, and Paul has got it wrong. And so Paul is saying, no, I had to go down to fact-check that we are on the same page, and in fact, the false teachers are the ones who have got it wrong. Now, Paul could see in this whole question that that the stakes were really high for the church and for the rest of church history, actually. Uh, Because if he didn't sort this out, what would happen is that in the church, you'd have two groups. Uh, You'd have the Christians who who do eat bacon and the Christians who don't eat bacon, for example. Uh, You'd have the Christian men who aren't circumcised and the Christian men who are circumcised. In other words, you'd have the ones who thought you had to keep the Jewish law as well as Jesus and the ones who, who knew that faith in Christ was enough. And so as Peter Adam talked about last week, at, at morning tea at church, you'd have, you'd have two groups. You'd have the kosher line uh, for, for the kosher Christians, and you'd have the non-kosher line for the non-kosher Christians. And the church would be divided from here on in if there were these two different messages, these two different gospels. And so Paul does something quite amazing uh, to demonstrate that the power of the gospel back in Jerusalem He takes with him two men. He takes with him uh, Barnabas and Titus. And you go, well, who cares? Well, the point of it is that Barnabas was a Jewish Christian. You see, he had been circumcised. And Titus, we're told, was a Greek. He hadn't been circumcised. But he brings them both. These two are supposed to be enemies. They're supposed to be separated because one is a clean Jew and one is an unclean Gentile. And Paul is giving a powerful illustration to the church of how the gospel tears those barriers down and unites us through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's done 
nothing to do with what we've done. So Paul brings these two guys down as an illustration of our unity in the gospel. But I think he's also trying to get a reaction. He's, he's trying to see how these uh, Jerusalem Christians who've been circumcised will react to a Christian who hasn't been circumcised. So let's see what happens in verse 3. Paul says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. But because of false believers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy on the freedom we have in Christ so that they might enslave us, we did not submit to them for a moment so the truth of the gospel might always remain with you. So for the Apostle Paul to bring Titus with him to Jerusalem is what you call upping the ante. It's what you call raising the stakes. It's what you call go big or go home. You see... First of all, how would all these Jerusalem Christians who were circumcised respond to a Gentile Christian who wasn't circumcised? You see, they never have to think about that before. They were Jerusalem Christians. They'd all been circumcised. They were good Jews. And so how on earth are they going to respond to a Greek Christian who hasn't been circumcised? Uh, What what are we going to do with him? Uh, And the false teachers were saying, it's great that you've got Jesus, Titus, but Jesus, Jesus is good, Jesus is fine, but he's not enough. You need to be circumcised as well. If you want to belong, you need to be circumcised like us. That's what the false teachers were saying. And so bringing Titus would keep the discussion from being a purely theoretical discussion. No, here's a living example, and what are we going to do to him? The uh, Do with him. This would have massive implications for the gospel, But obviously for poor old Titus, it would have massive implications for him. And so now I want you to see what God is saying to us through verse 3. This memory verse, if you like. But even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised. That's not part of the gospel. That's not part of how we um, get right with God. That's not a condition of belonging to our group. It's Christ alone and faith alone in him. Um, Over the years, I've um, preached on various passages and um, uh, many years ago at youth group, I preached on Acts chapter 15, uh, which was our first reading, where they have this debate about um, what are the conditions or is is circumcision a condition of um, belonging in the family of God? Um, And um, for the Bible reading at youth group, we had a year eight boy who was... Um, doing the reading for us, and uh, it was a bit longer than the one we had, and and there's a bit in verse uh, 19 where in the NIV, uh, Peter um, stands up after the meeting and he says, we we should not make it too difficult for the Gentiles. Well, this year eight boy, he was still learning to read, and and so he, he got to that verse 19, we should not make it too difficult for the Gentiles, and he just got a few letters wrong, and instead he said, we should not make it too difficult for the genitals. <laughs> of course, they were talking, talking about circumcision and whether or not Gentiles needed to get circumcised. And as concerned as I'm sure they were for that and for Titus and for Gentiles, uh, it does completely miss the point 
uh, of what they're concerned about. You see, the thing that would make it too difficult for the Gentiles is not that little bit of pain that they would have to go through, but a a much greater pain. You see, the thing about uh, circumcision is that it was a symbol, right? Uh, and, And bear with me with this, it's a little grotesque, but the idea was that the pain of circumcision, of being cut off, was, was a pointer, um, a symbol of the pain of being cut off from God. So, so the little bit of pain in being cut off for the Jews in, in the Old Testament was a pointer and a warning about the pain of being cut off from God. It's a similar thing with, with baptism. That the, the picture is better with um, full immersion baptism, where there's a picture of dying, and the idea is the wages of sin is death, and, and so to be, um, but Jesus died in our place. And so, in a sense, baptism has the same symbolism, is that apart from Christ, you'll die in your sins. But because Jesus died and rose again, you'll be set free. And so the thing that would make it difficult for the Gentiles is not that little bit of pain of circumcision, but the pain of being cut off from God forever if you add to this gospel, this free gospel of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. So... Uh, the thing that would make it difficult for them was to take away from what Christ has done by adding in anything else, whether it's circumcision, the way you dress, the colour of your skin. That's what would make it difficult for the Gentiles. Um, in the Old Testament, there's, there's um, what you call ceremonial law. There's moral law uh, and there's ceremonial law. And, and there were these cleanliness laws, laws like you know, if you touched a dead body, you wouldn't be able to go to the temple. Uh, if you ate the wrong foods, if you had a nocturnal emission or if you were having your period, all these cleanliness things, you wouldn't be able to go to the temple. But, but the point of all that stuff was that even after you kept all those cleanliness laws, which were quite onerous, you know, like weaving different fabrics uh, to, together, uh, even after you kept all those things, the point was when you got to the temple, you still needed a sacrifice for sin. You still needed to make a sacrifice even after keeping all the cleanliness laws. In other words, it wasn't enough. But here's the thing. The false teachers were saying the opposite. They were saying, no, you need to keep the cleanliness laws. They are enough. If you keep those things, then you'll be clean in the sight of God. If you don't do them, you'll be unclean. And that's exactly the opposite of what they were there for. This, this is why Hebrews 9 says, the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. And this is the new order in Christ. In other words, these ceremonial laws aren't so much abolished or replaced, they're actually fulfilled in Christ who makes us clean. He's the one who cleanses us by faith in what he achieved through his sacrifice on the cross. And so now we're beginning to see what Paul's talking about in verse 4. Have a look when he says, The false believers slipped in to spy on the freedom we have in Christ so that they could enslave us. The freedom that we have in Christ so that they could enslave us. What, what's he talking about? How does the gospel, how does Paul's message bring freedom and how does tinkering with it end up in slavery? Well, firstly, I think that the gospel brings us cultural freedom, you see, because moralistic or legalistic religion tends to put requirements on people in order to be saved 
and in order to be part of the group. Uh, You have to do this, you have to do that, you have to talk a certain way, you have to listen to certain kinds of music. You see, uh, you put requirements and you end up with an in-group and an out-group. By the way, this is true in secular religion too. I mean, if your religion is beauty, then uh, you've, you've got an in-group of the beautiful who do it all right and you've got the out-group who wear op-shop clothing or maybe that's beautiful or whatever the, the other way around or, or the sporting religion uh, where you do enough training and you're in the in-group and you're not enough training. It, it applies to secular religion too. Uh, that if you put requirements on people in order to be saved or in order to be part of the group, then you end up with this... Um, uh, lack of cultural freedom. It's only for the, a certain culture and it's not for other cultures. And so that means that this one set of cultural values gets um, enshrined and encoded and lifted up, but it's to the, inclusion, to the exclusion of, of all the others. You end up with an in-group of, of whoever keeps all the rules and, and, and abides by whatever the rules are for that group, and you end up with an out-group, the people who don't keep those things. You have first-class Christians and second-class Christians, and this creates a whole lot of division. And so the gospel actually brings us cultural freedom because the requirement is nothing you do but what Christ has done for us in giving himself for us on the cross. It's what he's done. So it brings cultural freedom, but it brings emotional freedom too. I mean, think about it. As soon as you put a set of requirements on people and you say that their relationship with God or their inclusion in the group depends on their performance at whatever it is, you're putting them on an endless treadmill of guilt and insecurity. Have I put in enough today to belong to the group? Have I put in enough today to be accepted? In fact, how many Christians are there in the church today who think that their performance depends on their relationship with God, and so they get on the treadmill and they bust their guts for God until they're completely burned out, and then they hop off again because they're completely exhausted, and they have a break, and when they catch their breath, they get back on the treadmill, busting their guts for God so that God will accept them, that they'll be acceptable in His sight, and then off again and on again, and they make absolutely no progress in the faith, and they're completely burned out, insecure, guilty, and exhausted... Because they don't understand the freedom that we have in Christ. It's slavery. That's why Paul says it's, it's slavery. You have to have it, whatever it is, whether it's the God of beauty, whether it's the God of fitness, whether it's the God of the Bible. And so you slave away on this endless treadmill in order to be accepted before him, never understanding that you're already accepted in Christ because of what he's done and not because of what you've done. And so the freedom of the gospel is this. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Can I say that again? This is the freedom of the gospel. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. This is the gospel that Paul was fighting for down in Jerusalem and he got the outcome he was looking for. Look at verse 9. He says, The apostles recognized the grace that had been given to me and they gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship. In other words, they're on the same page. 
Paul and the apostles. There's no difference. People try and drive a wedge between what you read in the Gospels and what you read in Paul. And he's saying, no, there's no difference. They gave us the right hand of fellowship. It's the same gospel. The people who are preaching a different gospel are these false teachers. So you need to ignore them and you need to listen to Paul. Now, I told you that there'd be suffering involved in in, in, um, preparing and hearing the sermon. But I want to ask the question, well, what on earth does this mean for us? What are the implications for us today? And I want to give you two implications as we wrap up. The first implication, I think, from what we see through Paul here, is that it's the gospel that gives us our unity. Our unity has a basis, and the basis for it is the gospel. Some people say that in in order for um, Christians to come together, what we need to do is is to forget about all of our differences. Uh, Just put them aside, because all that doctrine ever does is to divide. Now, can I say that that is true for lesser doctrines? I think what we see in the Bible is that there are closed-hand matters that we have with the closed hands, and there are open-hand matters. And I want to say that that is true of open-handed matters. Was the Bible literally, was the world literally made in seven days? Are there still spiritual gifts today? Yada, yada, yada. Those are open-handed matters. But I want you to see that here we have a closed-hand, non-negotiable issue and that the basis of our unity is in the gospel. Paul is saying when he brings the Jewish background Barnabas and the uh, Gentile background Titus, that, that it's the gospel that brings us together. And if you add this religion where you have these other requirements of circumcision, then that's divided. They w- we wouldn't be together. The gospel is what breaks down that barrier and brings us together. It's through the gift of God's son by grace. Think about the way an orchestra tunes itself. I've never been part of uh, an orchestra, but uh, I'm told on good authority. Have you, do you know how they tune themselves? Well, they don't tune themselves to each other in order to sound united and harmonious. Imagine if they all tried to tune themselves to each other. Uh, it, would, it wouldn't be a symphony. It would be a cacophony. And no, what they do is that they tune themselves to the oboe, but... The oboe doesn't just go, oh, yeah, I got it, whatever, yeah, I just was banging around in my boot and here we go, we'll tune to it. No, he tunes or she tunes to perfect pitch, to a tuning peg or to an electronic thing that has perfect pitch. And so the way that you get harmony, the way that you get unity is is not by ignoring the the, um, tuning peg, but by tuning yourselves to it. And so it is for the gospel and so it is for the church. And this is what Paul is trying to establish in this letter. The way to unity is not by ignoring the gospel, but by tuning yourselves to the gospel that we saw last week is transcendent. It's outside of ourselves. We're not tuning ourselves to each other and our own ideologies, but to the Lord Jesus Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so unity comes through the gospel of tuning ourselves to him. That's the first implication. The second implication is that the gospel is worth fighting for. Can you see the strains that Paul is going to to defend and to uphold the gospel? He's been preaching for 14 years all across the Roman world. He would much prefer to be doing that, but he's willing to travel. They didn't have Uber back then or planes, by foot, by boat, back to Jerusalem to establish the authority of the gospel. And he does it even with these Barnabas and Titus to bring them and to show that our salvation is by grace alone. It's interesting, in our... um, I saw this in our boys' Bible study on, on Friday night. Um, the harshest words that Jesus ever spoke to one of his disciples. Uh, 
Do you know who, who the disciple was? The harshest words he ever spoke to one of his disciples. It was to Peter. Peter had just realized that, uh, said that Jesus was the, was the Messiah, the Son of God. And then Jesus went on to tell Peter something. And essentially he told him the gospel. He said, I'm going to have to suffer and die and then rise again for the salvation of the world. And Peter said, no, 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 no. What are you talking about? You're going to have to do that. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You're messing with the gospel. And messing with the gospel stuffs up people's freedom, their salvation, and unity in Christ. And so it's interesting that the thing that Jesus got most exercised with and most animated about, and the thing that he was willing to fight for with Peter, was this gospel. And now we see Paul doing the same thing. You can't mess with the gospel. It's worth fighting for. That's the second implication. And so I want to finish this morning with the quote from a guy, Martin Luther, who took it upon himself to fight for the gospel. And I want to leave you with these words. He says, Let this then be the conclusion of it all, that we will be willing to suffer our goods to be taken away, our name, our life, and all that we have to be taken away. But the gospel, our faith in Jesus Christ, we will never suffer to be taken away. And here I confess that I am and ever will be stout and stern and will not give an inch to anyone. So maybe Galatians 2 verse 3 is a good memory verse to have on your wall. And even Titus who was with me was not compelled to be circumcised. Why? Because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the free gift of salvation and forgiveness of sins we have from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because he gave himself on the cross for our sins to suffer the punishment that we deserve. And Lord, that he was the perfect law keeper so that if we're found in him, We're set free. We're no longer a slave, but we're a child. No longer under duty, but now it's choice. So, Lord, please write these things on our hearts. And I pray particular for Joshua and for Guy and Sherry that you will raise him up and help them to raise him up in the confidence of the free gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.